We've made it all the way through. Last book of the Bible. Some people's favorite book. Other people don't read it at all. I've read it a few times. It's not one of my favorites, I'll be honest with you. But for some people, some of you in this room, it's like the book you you go to. And then we have others like David, who's not here tonight, um, that every conversation comes back to this book. Um, And I love him, and I'm glad it does. But every conversation goes back to this book. <laughs> and he does a good job teaching this. He, we've, he's done the, his Revelation class a couple of times here. And he does a good job with it. Um, I guess as we're starting, why do you read this book? Why, why are you, those of you who like this book, why do you read it? Why do you like it? What's to come? You want to know the ending. Uh, well, that depends on how you read it. We're going to talk about that tonight. <laughs> you like the promises in it? What is the primary, well, we'll talk about that in a minute. Why would you not read this book? Those of you who don't, don't like this book, or, or, or why not to read this book? Why not read why, why Why is this not in your canon? Fear? Okay, that's, that's a good point. It scare you? I mean, absolutely. There's some scary stuff in there. Confusing. Oh, I hear that a lot. There's a lot of confusing imagery in there. Uh, Not only just confusing imagery, but how should you read it? It's confusing. We're going to talk about, um, before we really get started, we're going to talk about different ways people read it. And... uh, It's, it's complicated. Tainted. Oh, that's a good word. What do you mean by that? Oh, absolutely. There's so many people use it out of context. Oh, that's that's good. You know, another reason that I struggle with it is because what media has done to it. Like when I start reading the book of people, automatically jump to what they've seen on TV, like um, Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, or you know Revelation, or what was that other one? I, I was, the Omega Code, or uh, you know, there's all these different movies and stuff like that that you, people have trouble separating from what's here and what they see on TV. And, of course, we see that with anything that, you know, like you read the book and the mo- watch the movie. 
Uh, we'll use Harry Potter as an example. There's a lot of people that believe stuff that's in the movies that's not in the book is canon, but it's, it's only because they've only watched the movie or they join the two. Like, wait, I thought that was in the book. No, it's not. It's, um, you know, or Lord of the Rings is another good example of that, um, if you like those. Uh, every time I watch the Lord of the Rings, I have to remind myself, it's a movie. This is not the book because the books are awesome and the movies are, well, they got good imagery. Uh, <laughs> um, sorry, I'm a big Tolkien fan. Not a big Peter Jackson fan. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, this book is, is, is confusing. And um, this book consists of a long and complicated, it, it, it's a long and complicated series of visions. There's over 60 visions in this book. Um, that were given by God and prof, uh, portray a profound spiritual and theological truths. And many of these images are taken from the Old Testament. So to get them in their context, we have to know the Old Testament. Um, there are over 350 allusions or direct references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. 350 of them. So if you don't know your 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 Old Testament, guess what you're going to do with the New Te- with the Book of Revelation? You're not going to get it, or you're going to take it out of context. You're not going to understand. Um, it is um, well, Christian theology is woven throughout the book, but this is a apocalyptic literature. Um, there we go. Apocalyptic literature. Now, we've talked a little bit about a lot apocalyptic literature when we talked about which books in the Old Testament. Which book did we talk about apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament? Daniel. Very good. Apocalyptic literature um, is a, a type of literature unto itself. Not just in the Bible. There's a lot of apocalyptic literature. Now, when we say apocalyptic literature today versus what they mean when they say apocalyptic literature, uh, like the word apocalyptic literature refers to to reveal hidden things. Now, if I say this is a post-apocalyptic literature, you're going to go back and think about after World War III when the nuclear bombs have destroyed the world. and You've got to get that out of your head. That's not what apocalyptic means. It means to reveal hidden things. So the very fact that it reveals in visions makes it apocalyptic literature. Uh, There are revelation within it. Um, In the book of Revelation, um, there's revelations from God uh, to angels, to prophets, to servants. Um, Another common theme in apocalyptic literature is dualism. What do I mean by dualism? What's that mean? Two. So, can anyone, someone, and this is because of Persian influence. Um, can anyone give me an example of dualism? How 
How about good versus evil? Light versus dark. Jedi's versus Sith. Um, there, there's this dualistic that for every good there's an evil, every evil there's a good. Uh, a good. There's there's a dualism in the scripture in in apocalypse, and we see that in the book of Revelation as it talks about. Christ and the Antichrist. It talks about the beast, and you know, and uh, and and being put together by the you know, and, and there's like this Trinity, you should say, in the unholy Trinity in the in in not just in the in the Book of Revelation, but it's kind of in the New Testament, and that. Um, predestination is in apocalyptic literature. Um, the idea that God is over all, and he, now I want to I say this, he, his predestination, what I'm not saying is individualistic predestination, it is in the end, it is predestined to end, to happen this way, or it is, events in history, depending on how you read the book of Revelation, is supposed to happen this way. It's not talking about individuals, like, Okay, because you are you, this is going to actually happen to you. That's not what predestination means. And actually, most of the, I can't think of hardly any instances in the Bible where it's talking about you being you. There's a few prophets that get called out, but for the most part, it's when it talks about predestination, it's more like a general group or a, an event that's going to come past as a whole and, and that, uh, um, and that, um, so you got a very much predestination, and um, in in predestination, you know God will bring about peace and justice to earth, and that's predestined to happen um, by the ending. You know the ending of this bu- of the book, chapters what twenty one and twenty two are very much there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and end of suffering. It's predestined to happen. Um, and the purpose of that is to provide hope in a time of suffering. Um, exclusivism. Um, the idea it's one way, no other ways, right? In the book of Revelation, it's very much you follow the lamb or the beast. There's Now, how we interpret that depends on how you interpret the scriptures, but... It's either the lamb or the beast, and so we can you, you see that exclusive exclusivity in the in the scriptures, and and that's very common in apocalyptic literature uh, as a whole. You know, there's you know that revealing that this is the truth and this is not, and you know, follow this way. Um, violence and suffering is actually common um, in apocalyptic literature. Which is why I think some of us are drawn to it because there's such a, we see violence around us and explains violence and then it puts an end to the violence, right? But it talks about the treacherous times that we're in and evil will be repaid with violence and there's violence in the scriptures. And, and uh, um, apocalyptic literature often deals with eschatology. That's one of those big theological terms. Who knows what it means? 
End times, that's right. Study of the end times. Now, we'll talk here in a minute about the four different views, what you mean by end times actually depends on how you trans you interpret the scriptures, but it interpret but there is an end time kind of eschatology there. Um, periodization, dividing history into periods. We saw this back in Daniel. Remember how they were talking about the 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 statue with the and it represented the different periods and of course that depends on who what period you thought that was depends on when you thought it was written and all kinds of other features but um and well the revelation has kind of that same feel right we have like the seven churches and we have the millennial and we have the you know the thousand years and we have the 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 returning of the beast and we have the so you have this this uh this periodization um Apocalyptic literature often uses um, symbols and codes. Um, in the language of the in-group. See, one of the problems that we struggle with in reading Revelation is we are not in the in-group. Um, we were not there, and some of those traditions of how you're supposed to read it has been lost. Now, you talk to this group, they think they've got to figure it out. This group thinks they've got to figure it out. This group thinks they've got to figure it out. And we are missing some pieces there because when it was written in the apocalyptic style, they use a language that we have to recapture. Um, but that's pretty common for most of the Bible, isn't it? We have to recapture a lot of the language in the encyclopedia um, uh, to capture their meaning. And that's one of the reasons we wrestle with it. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen it misused so many, you know, people try to use our, our language on their stuff and it just, you know, our way of thinking on history. Um, I actually was listening to a, a historian talk about one of the things he thinks, uh, one of the problems he sees when people talk about history is putting our morals back on ancient people and saying they were wrong or right by the way they behaved by what we believe today. And he says, we've got to enter into dialogue with the past, not just throw our morals on them. They may have been in the right at their time period and they did not see the things the way we were. Uh, we didn't. So we, we also try to reclaim that in the scriptures. You know, we, we try to throw ourselves back on this and it doesn't always work out right. That's what meditation literature is about, right? Uh, pseudonyms. Um, um, pseudonyms are often used false names um, to claim it. Now, um, some people will argue, and we'll, uh, the, uh, we might as well move to the authorship of this book, Traditionally, it is by John, the same John that wrote John, wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation. He wrote all of it according to tradition. Now, you're going to listen, if you go out and study this, you're going to see people that say, no, he didn't. He's using a false name, a pseudonym, which is common in apocalyptic literature. Does it have to be a false name? No, it very well could have been John. That is tradition. But could it have been a false name? Absolutely. Or it could have just been a different John. 
John is actually kind of a common name. Uh, we have in the prologue, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which was given to, sh- to him to show his servant what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies everything he saw and what the Lord, what God and the testament of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have John. And that's what we've got. (laughs) So tradition holds that it's the same John. It does sound similar. And that's, and I'm told the Greek kind of falls in line and, um, so, sure, why not? But does it have to be? No, it doesn't. Either way, it does not take away what's being said. According to traditions, John's on the island of Patmos, which is a small island off the close, coast of Asia Minor in the Aegean Sea. Uh, it's a barren, rocky place where he's exiled to die after a failed boiling attempt when they tried to boil this, him to death. That's what tradition holds. He was boiled in tar and it failed to kill him and so he was exiled onto the island of Patmos. Um, No one said this life was going to be easy. If that's all true, we definitely can hold to the idea that no one said this life was going to be easy. (laughs) Um... The dating of this book, it probably, uh, if we go for an earlier dating, it's probably after, actually after the fall of, um, of um, Israel. If you go through the earliest dating, it'd be before the fall, before AD 70. But a lot of people put it in Domitian's reign during AD 81 to, to 90, uh, 96. So there's two, there's two different like er, camps on that one. It's either, uh, well, some people put it as late as the second century, but we're not going there. It's either in Nero's during Nero's reign or during Domitian's reign, uh, depending on which tradition you hold. Um, okay. Uh, Revelation at a glance. Um, yeah, that's at a glance. I'm actually, we're going to watch the Bible Project videos at the end of this. And so they do, a, they actually have a better chart, set of charts that they, they show. But uh, um, So we'll watch the last of the Bible Project videos that we're going to watch for a while. Because they don't have church history stuff. <laughs> um but we'll watch that. That's about 20 minutes of video, so we'll have to make, I'm keeping an eye on the clock, make sure we have time to watch those. Um, but um, here's another quick outline for you. Uh, introductory v- and, uh, vision and the letters to the seven churches. This is probably the most famous section because we get that far and we're like, I can understand that. Then we start getting into the unfolding of history up to the return of Christ in 4 through 19. And we're like, well, I'm not sure I understand some of this. 
And then we got Catholic tradition based off of Protestant tradition, and we got how do you interpret this one, and how do you interpret that one, and we're like, uh, and often this is around where we stop, and then we skip to the end and say, I like this section right here, where there's millennial reign, and then there's the the new heaven and new earth. I like that. I can get that. New heaven, new earth goes back to Genesis. Yes. Okay. So we're going backwards. And actually, what a lot of this book does is it works backwards thematically through the book of Genesis. As you end back in the new heaven and new earth, just like Genesis was, there was heaven and there was earth. So it works backwards to where you get to read, you know, like you're going back to the beginning, like it was in the beginning. And so... Um, so this, you know, this is the area where most people get confused and lost and often skip, and then we go on to this other section. So, um, all right. Well, I'm going to skip that because I want to make sure we get to the Bible project. All right. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about real quick is the seven churches, is the most famous part. The seven churches in the book of Revelation are real places in Asia Minor. The church of Ephesus, remember Paul spends quite a bit of time there. Uh, They have left their first love, remember? The church of Smyrna, um, be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life, is what Revelation says. Uh, Pergamum. Will, um, I have a few things against you, but keep faith, and um, because but um, they tolerate Im- uh, immorality, idolatry, and heresies. Uh, Thyatira. Holds, holds fast until, what, uh, until I come. Love, service, faith, patience. Tolerates the cult of idolatry and immorality. The church of Sardis. Um, you, have, uh, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Mm, dead church. Church of, everyone knows this one. Philadelphia. Brotherly love, uh, I have set before you a, a, you an, an open door, uh, preserver of the faith, um, and Laodicea, yep, neither hot nor cold, indifferent, I'm just going to go off on a side note on that, I kind of hate the way people use that, you're either cold or you're hot, cold is like, and they use it like, okay, either hot for God or you're cold because you're, you're in the cold and don't... That scripture is talked about. The only bad ones are the lukewarm ones. Either you're cold, which means you're healing, refreshing, or you got that cold water is healthy and good and refreshes your body. Hot water is used for medicine and and healing and teas, and it's fantastic. The only bad group there is the, the lukewarm ones. Uh, you can be cold and refreshing and re- you know rejuvenating, or you can be hot, and and I've seen that passage so many times out of context, and 
and to say, well, you're, you're either cold because you're left out, you're, 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 you're not a Christian, or you're hot on fire for Christ, or you're cold because you're refreshing and you're hot because you're um, in hell. Um, <laughs> um, you have heard it both ways. But in, that con- in the context of the verse, the only bad group is the ones that are lukewarm. Because it's not talking to non-Christians. It's talking to believers. It's not talking to... And the same with that door. Though I stand at the door and knock. It's not talking to non-believers there. I, I've used that, so, heard that so many times. Talking about God's knocking at the heart of your door. He wants you to accept Him. That may sound great, it's a great sermon, but it's out of context, and, and he's not talking to, he's talking to believers there. I'm here, I'm knocking, I want to live in your life as believers. Um, anyways. All right. I have a handout. All right, what you're looking at here is four different ways people read the book of Revelation. You thought yours was the only way, I know. Um, when you see people come at the book of Revelation, they're saying, well, this group is wrong or that group is wrong. It's because they're interpreting the book differently. And I don't know if we know the right way. So all of these have some validity to them. Now, as you guys are reading this, you might say, well, that's my point of view. I can tell you, most of this, well, you'll, you'll be like, I can tell you exactly what it is. But let's go through this real quick. Uh, Peterist. Um, Peterist... Um, See that Revelation is um, sorry um, is only about events in the past. So then they read at Revelation, they think it's all, and some of these still say, well, maybe one uh, twenty and twenty uh, twenty one and twenty two. You know, the last section hasn't come to pass, but um, but most of but. Some of them, all of it has come to pass. Everything we read about took place already about the time of the letters writing, during the time of, um, uh, of the, uh, the destruction of, Is, of, of Jerusalem and the destroying of the temple in AD 70. 
Um, actually, I was talking to a Peterist who believes that the whole book was like all of it was sealed when the temple fell and Christ was, became the, the, you know, the, the end and we're just bringing heaven on earth now. So all these talk about the future books is all just useless and, and is just and he, you know, he really believes that. Um, but um, so he, in this viewpoint, the letter was written for the original readers, and it only comes through the circumstance and interpretation. Um, so anyone who reads it outside those few centuries, there's limited use for us other than meditative on what it means, uh, meditative scriptures, meditative literature. Um, it doesn't do us much good because it's already come to pass. It's not like we can see the future to it. Um, the historic viewpoint. Um, this one is a little different to Peterist, though they believe most of it has already come to pass, but they see it going out instead of just being at the, um, the time of the writing, you know, 80, 70 is kind of like the marker when the strict historists view that it's, it has spread throughout history and is coming to an end now. Uh, or usually it's now or, or as soon as, you know, they're, you know, soon. Um, but it's, it's events that have spread throughout history. Um, futurists are those who believe that everything is still in the future. You know, um, you may be the first, the churches are, are past, but everything else is still yet to come. I know some of you in this room are that way. You know, everything in the Bible is just still to come except for maybe the churches. Um, and then there's the symbolic point of view, which says, well, it's not really talking about anything that will come to pass or has come to pass. It's just symbolic imagery. It's meant to teach us something and maybe a repeating pattern that has happened over and over and over throughout history. If you flip it over, I'll let you guys read some more of that on your own. But if you flip it over to the back, um, it kind of has a chart of how they, they see it. You know, like uh, you can see the Peterist, it's all right there at the end. Historic is spread out throughout history. Uh, futurist, is, it's all still yet to come. And symbolic is it's a repeating pattern that we all learn from every generation that we can, we can learn from. And, uh, um, and like I said, there's no one set way we can read this. I have actually read them with all these different viewpoints in mind, and I've learned something different every time I've read it uh, from the book of Revelation uh, because it has brought new influence into my life and new, new insight into how I can live my life. Uh, of course, I grew up in the state of the historic. That's where my, my family was, where it's all in the past except for what has yet to come. Though I know some of you are futurists. You know, it's uh, nothing, you know, maybe the churches, but everything else is still yet to come. So read 4 through 19, that's still stuff yet to come. Um, I think my personal favorite way to read it is symbolic because then it's something I can use 
no matter what happens next. Um, you know, no matter where I'm at, I can, I can use it. Um, um, so those are the four different views now. Um, and that's not even getting into whether you're premillennialist or, 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 or postmillennialist or animalist or um, dispensational. Um, I think the most common that I've seen here in American churches, and this is actually a relatively new way of reading it, like as far as history goes, because you know history is really far back, um, is the dispensational premillennial theory, um, which you will come, resurrection comes before the tribulation, you rise up to meet them, and, um, and views, interprets, events beginning with chapter 4 to be prophecy that will come in the future age. That's why I say futurist. And uh, Christ ushers in a millennial. Um, and the dispensational because it's, it's visions of the age to come. And sometimes people will go further with their dispensational, which means they believe that the churches represents different ages. Like the church of if, if Ephesus represented the first age of the church and then Church of Thermite, uh, um, uh, you know, Laodicea represents another age of the church and, uh, and where you believe we're at depends on how close you think we are to the end. Um, but, uh, and I think that's probably the most common I've seen in our American churches. Um, postmillennial, of course, doesn't mean that the Resurrection doesn't come till after the uh, the tribulation. Uh, and millennial believes it's going to um, uh, actually most millennials reject the idea of a thousand year reign of Christ, and uh, the book is describes historic. Most historics and Peterists are amillennialist. Um because they they say it's all stuff that has already happened. Um, so, of course, then there's the historic premillennialist theory, which, um, and see, I'm getting all kinds of confusing, huh? That's because it gets all kinds of confusing. What kind of viewpoint you are on all these different things? Um, but, um, you know, like I said, there are, Benefits to reading each one of these in its own, uh, in each, the Bible in each, the book of Revelation in each of these different modes of thinking. Now, for some of us, that might be hard because you can, you've heard it so long in this way of thinking. Like you might have grown up uh, futurist, premillennialist, dispensationalist, and you're like, that's the way I only know how to read it. And you have to say, well, what if I want to read it as a symbolic book where that's not actually what we call literal, though? The ancients would have called literal different than what we call literal. Uh, the terminology has changed. Um, like St. Augustine believed he was being literal, and we would say, you're not literal, you're figurative. Um, <laughs> um, ain't, ain't it fun? Language is fun. 
Um, but so you might say, well, I want to read it symbolically, so I have to go and buy maybe a book on the symbolic views of, of Revelation and, and read that so that you get in the mindset of what they're thinking and you read the book of Revelation with that as it's kind of a symbolic action that's repeated every generation. And, and how can that apply to my, my generation? How can we, we see this play out? What does it mean for us? And, or you might want to read it with a, a historic point of view or, or, a, or a preterist point of view. Well, let's go look at the first century and how can all these events, how could they have been played out and what could they have mean? And what does that mean for me? And you, know, and you can see different things. Like I said, I believe the Bible to be meditative literature. We're supposed to be wrestling with this. And part of that is maybe reading it from someone else's point of view. Um, which can be a struggle for a lot of us. Um, and, uh, but I think it's, it's wonderfully and it's good to, to look at these different viewpoints. And I'm not going to come down on any one of them because I like them all. And I can see evidence for all of them. You know, they've all got good points of view. Um, and to me, the hope is in the worship of God, whether at future event, past event, the hope is there because there's the worship of God. Actually, the last time I taught through this as a book, you know, because I went through each chapter and stuff like that, which we're not going to do now because I'm already running out of time uh, to get those videos in. Um, but the last time I did it, um, we didn't do anything with the premillennialist tribulation. We just looked at it from the point of view as it's a worship of God book. And we went through and just looked at it as just the worship of God. And that was a really fun study. Um, because that's where the hope is in for me. It's about the worship of God. Uh, no matter what, it, if it's future or past or plays out or how it plays out, it's all about the worship of God. And, and so that was, um, and that was really just a, an exciting way to read it for me. Because then I was like, it doesn't matter with all these things I can't possibly know. What matters is that I can meditate on the worship of God found in this book. And that was really just eye-opening for me when I studied, did that study that way. I had the blessing of teaching it that way. And uh, um, so um, anyways, um, let's let um, Tim and John lead us through the two last videos we'll be watching on Tuesday night for quite a while. Um, I know you guys like these, so I wanted to squeeze these two in um, on the book of Revelation. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. The Greek word is apokalupsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. 
And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypses communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus, exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence. Others were morally compromised. Their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples. But others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, and he describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're giving honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But it turns out no one is able to open the scroll until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the Messianic king who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears. 
But then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the lamb alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal, linear sequence of events that either happened in the past, or could be happening now, or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment, and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals, and John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1, and they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne, and the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever the sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel, and the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion. 
Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the Lamb. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. And once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7. And the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors. And the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the Lord. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people? And how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus given to John the Prophet. In the first video, we explored how John composed this apocalyptic prophecy as a circular letter to seven churches in Asia Minor to challenge and comfort these Christians who were suffering from apathy and persecution under the Roman Empire. 
We also encountered John's main symbol for Jesus, the slain lamb, who conquered his enemies by dying for them. He is the one who opens up the scroll containing God's purposes to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The scroll's opening brought warning judgments like the plagues of Egypt, and like Pharaoh, the nations do not repent. And then John introduced the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb, and the open scroll revealed their strange mission. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and mercy before the beastly nations, even if it kills them. And they will conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the Lamb, and this will move the nations to repentance. In the remainder of the book, John will fill out his portrayal of this beast and his war on God's people and how the whole story ends. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. But they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek. And Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero is just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel, that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. 
Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat? Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl as the dragon and the beasts they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with Gog. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Now, John has fully unpacked the message of the Lamb's unsealed scroll. And now he goes back to expand on three key themes that he's introduced earlier. The fall of Babylon, the final battle to defeat evil, and the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And each one of these explores the final coming of God's kingdom from a different angle. So first, the fall of Babylon. An angel shows John a stunning woman who's dressed like a queen, but she's drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of all innocent people. She's riding the dragon beast from the sign visions. It's a symbol of the rebellious nations. And she's called Babylon, the prostitute. Now, the detailed symbols of this vision, they would be very clear to John's first readers. He's personifying the military and economic power of the Roman Empire, but he's also doing more. In this vision, John has blended together words and images from every single Old Testament passage about the downfall of ancient Babylon, Tyre, and Edom. John's showing how Rome is simply the newest version of the Old Testament archetype of humanity in rebellion against God. They come together and form nations that exalt their own economic and military security into a false God. This isn't something limited to the past or the future. It's a portrait of the human condition throughout history. And Babylon's will come and go leading up to the day when Jesus returns to replace Babylon with his kingdom. But how will Jesus's kingdom come? Up to this point, the day of the Lord has been depicted as a day of fire or earthquake or harvest. And now it's depicted as a final battle and it's told twice. It results in the vindication of the martyrs. Now John takes us back to the sixth bowl where the nations were gathered together to oppose God. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He's the great hero. He's the word of God riding on a white horse and he's ready to conquer the world's evil. But pay attention. He's covered with blood before the battle even begins, and that's because it's his own. 
and his only weapon is the sword of his mouth. It's an image adapted from Isaiah. John's telling us that Armageddon will not be a bloodbath. Rather, the same Jesus who shed his own blood for his enemies now comes proclaiming justice. He will hold accountable those who refuse to repent of the ways that they participate in the ruin of God's good world. And the destructive hellfire that they've unleashed in God's world justly becomes their own God-appointed destiny. After this, John sees a vision of Jesus' followers who have been murdered by Babylon, and they're brought back to life, and they reign with the Messiah for 1,000 years. Then after this, the dragon who inspired humanity's rebellion against God rallies the nations of the world together to rebel against God's kingdom. But before God's throne of justice, they all face the consequences of eternal defeat. And so the forces of spiritual evil and everyone who doesn't want to participate in God's kingdom are destroyed. They're given what they want to exist by themselves and for themselves. And so the dragon and Babylon and all who choose them are eternally quarantined, never again able to corrupt God's new creation. Now, there's a lot of debate about the relationship of the 1,000 years to these two battles. There are some who think it refers to a literal chronological sequence. Jesus' return, followed by a thousand-year kingdom on earth called the millennium, followed by God's final judgment. Other people think that the thousand years are a symbol of Jesus' and the martyrs' present victory over spiritual evil, and that the two battles depict Jesus' future return from two different angles. Whichever view you take, the main point is clear. When Jesus returns as king, he will deal with evil forever, and he'll vindicate those who have been faithful to him. The book concludes with a final vision of the marriage of heaven and earth. An angel shows John a stunning bride that symbolizes the new creation that has come forever to join God and his covenant people. God announces that he's come to live with humanity forever and that he's making all things new. John's vision here is a kaleidoscope of Old Testament promises. This place is a new heavens and earth, a restored creation that's healed of the pain and evil of human history. It's also a new garden of Eden, the paradise of eternal life with God. But it's not simply a return back to the garden. It's a step forward into a new Jerusalem, a great city where human cultures and all their diversity work together in peace and harmony before God. And in the most surprising twist of all, there's no temple building in the new creation because the presence of God and the Lamb that were once limited to the temple now permeate every square inch of the new world. And there's a new humanity there fulfilling the calling placed on them all the way back on page one of the Bible to rule as God's image, to partner together with God in taking this creation into new and uncharted territory. And so ends John's apocalypse and the epic storyline of the whole Bible. John did not write this book as a secret code for you to decipher the timetable of Jesus' return. It's a symbolic vision that brought hope and challenge to the seven first century churches and every generation of Christians since. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise that every human kingdom eventually becomes Babylon and must be resisted in the power of the slain lamb. But there's a promise that Jesus, who loved and died for this world, will not let Babylon go unchecked. He will return one day to remove evil from his good world and make all things new. And that is a promise that should motivate faithfulness in every generation of God's people until the king returns. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. That's what? Fire hose version. Fire hose version. What do you mean by that? Because it's all thrown at you so fast?
A lot of stuff thrown at you. It really was. Um, what point of view did he take? Symbolic. That's how he reads it. Um, like I said, it comes from different different directions. Um, I like reading them from all of them. Um, all right. Well, it is after seven. We're out of time. Next week, we're Jehovah Witness. Because we were asked to discuss what uh, Jehovah Witnesses believe and what they are. And so we'll be discussing that next week. And then the week after that, we're going to begin church history. Um, yeah. First time teaching that, so I'm excited and nervous. And trying to figure out how I'm going to get all of that material into an hour. <laughs> yeah, fire hose it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray and be dismissed. Uh, Father God, we praise you today, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful blessing you've given us just to, to worship you and to be in your word. Lord, we pray that uh, you just help us to, to um, apply your word to our lives and just uh, meditate on your scriptures day and night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.